Hello and welcome back to the Tani Talks Life, to the TTL, brought to you by the Tani Talks Podcast. This is the sheer where we talk a topic per session with some practical lessons. Tonight's topic is removing our masks and unleashing our true selves. All of my podcasts of the TTP, the Parsha, TTPA, Perkeavos, TTD, the Doth, TTOT, Occupational Therapy, and this live show, TTL, are hosted by JewishPodcast.fm. Come join us on this amazing platform, JewishPodcast.fm. Super easy. The shows are also on different podcast forums, including iTunes Podcast, Google Podcasts, and Jewish Podcast sister app of Yidpod. The Jewish Podcast app service. Download it on the App Store today. So easy to find. We are also on the wonderful Naki Radio, your premier source for Jewish internet kosher radio with a wonderful dedicated channel. Find us on the portal, portal.nakiradio.com. Look for the Tani Talks podcast channel where you can hear all five of us on a real internet radio player. I have this the solo, they have the duo and the home. Really cool stuff. Really great way to hear internet radio, Jewish radio, including podcasts. As well as the Tani Talks podcast, go to nakiradio.com, N-A-K-I-R-A-D-I-O.com, a fascinating, awesome thing. Of course, you can support and follow the Tani Talks podcast, the chesedfun.com, 1S, slash Tani Chesedfun, 2S, slash the Tani Talks podcast. The sheer should be a refuah and Yeshua for anyone who wants and anyone who needs, especially the Eloi Nishmas, Chaim Yitzchak ben Michal Shlomo, my dad's Yerzeh, which is coming up in just a few weeks, and Menachem Sviben Chaim Yitzchak, my brother's Yerzeh, which is coming up also just in a few weeks, but also for the Rafua and Yeshua of anyone who wants, anyone who needs, and everybody should be happy and healthy and safe now and always on Meva Esrim Shana. I, of course, am reachable at MaximumTEE at Yahoo.com, MaximumTEE at Yahoo.com. Growing up, a lot of us don't reveal to the world our hidden internal selves. We don't share our struggles. We don't share our fights. We don't share our battles. We don't share our wars with the world. Most people don't know what we are going through on a daily basis. Most people don't know what goes on behind closed doors of a home or closed doors within a person and a soul and their soul behind the closed doors of their own battle, their own internal struggles. We need to change that. It is important to share your struggles with another, whether a spouse or family member or a trusted mentor or a therapist. As the saying goes, and I'm chopping it and paraphrasing it, but when you share your struggle, you unleash your burden, and it is easier to carry. You unburden your burden. It is easier to carry. I actually have a therapist that I talk to on a constant basis. I find it fascinatingly helpful. I Zoom with him once a week or so, 45 minutes. It's really helpful. I believe everyone can benefit from a mentor, just like I believe everyone could benefit from OT, from occupational therapy. There are great books out there, great Jewish novels where the hidden agenda is to show how wonderful therapy is. Some of the Jewish novels I love to read are actually Riva Pomerantz on Menucha Publishers. We switched over a long time ago to the Jewish novels. That's what we do in the FLL, the Free Lending Library, where we give out the Jewish novels, but we build the library reading those novels. And one of the not-so-hidden agendas of the author is to show how wonderful therapy is for everyone. Interestingly, Purim is about to come about, about upon us and about all of us, 
And it's all about masks and costumes. People say in the non-Jewish world that Purim is the Jewish Halloween. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Yet on both days, people do wear costumes and dress up, yes. But the similarities end there. Whereas in October, it's about trick or treat. Basically collecting as much candy as possible. Give me, give me, give me. I want to destroy my body, destroy my teeth. Give me, give me, give me, trick or treat. All you do is you gather candy, gather candy. On Purim, for many, many reasons, Lahavdal, it's really the opposite. It's about giving. I want to give Mishloach Manut Ishlerehu, and I want to remind you, like we talked about in our Parsha show today, Ishlerehu, singular. One man to his friend, one or two items. Matanot Le'evyonim is plural. Matanot, plural gifts, le'evyonim, plural poor people. So what are you supposed to do? Do you think you're supposed to give more to Shalach Manos or more to Matanot le'evyonim? If you're going to spend a thousand, and it's not that difficult on Parham to spend a thousand, you make 45 bags, 400 bags, and each one is intricate and has a glass plate and a glass this. How much do you think you should spend to Matanot le'evyonim? You're going to send a measly $54, but you spent a thousand on your friends. You can't spend at least that, if not more, on the poor people of the world. Ish who it says in the text of the Megillah, we're going to read in a few days, one man to his friend, to one friend. And a girl, a woman, a spouse, a wife should give to her friend. A man should give to his friend. The husband gives to his friend one or two items. You know, Rava and... Marzutra, very famous, we're going to look at it in a little bit. They used to swap meals in order to fulfill not only the meal on Purim, but to fulfill Mishloach Manum. Nowadays, people go so above and beyond, but the idea of Matam Slavionim is almost swept under the rug. It's almost as if an afterthought. Baruch Hashem, we, we signed up for Matam Slavionim. We gave the money to the shul already a couple of days ago, and I wanted to give a token amount, a set amount per kid. There's six of us, so times six. And I'm feeling like if I'm going to make 30 bags for Purim, and we make 30 bags for around the neighborhood, but each bag is very small, very little, uh, this and that, a trail mix and a this and a that, doesn't add up so much, then at least let me give X amount to Matanos Evyonim. The idea of Purim is about giving, whereas the other one, which the seculars do and might have taken from us, probably, it's about the taking. How much can I eat? How much can I take? How much candy can I fill up in my my jack-o'-lantern or my this or that? Don't get me wrong. I think it's a very nice thing when people go around the neighborhood and they're very neighborly. And actually, we were driving around on that day and people did come by our house and we did give candy because I feel like it's a very big important thing to be Mekadashim Shemayim and to be a good neighbor. But the idea is very different. Venahapachu, venahapach, the opposite. By us, Purim is about giving, giving, giving. You have the meal. You give to your spouse and kids for the meal. You give to your spouse and kids and to friends of those around you the joy, the holiday. Giving Mishlach Manot, giving poor people money. Giving, giving, giving. What can we give? We take away the mask. We take away the idea that people are hiding. People don't know each other's things. On Purim, do you know there's a halacha, there's a halacha that says any single person that outstretches their hand, that gives their hand to you and asks for money, you cannot deny them. You cannot look into it. You not, cannot investigate. You have to give everyone. So in yeshiva, what a lot of people do is they get a lot, a lot of quarters or a lot of single dollars and they keep it with them. And anyone that asks, you have to give. You're supposed to give. You cannot turn them away. Whereas during the year, you could look into people. You could look into the ideas. You could say, ah, I don't know if he's legit. He's sketch. I don't really believe his tzedakah or this or that. It seems like a, uh, a scam. On Parmi, can't do that. Anyone that comes, call Mishloach 
you have to give. Anyone that gives, you have to give. It's all about giving and you can't even look into it. The whole idea of Purim, remembering the mask and the costume is only a hint. It shouldn't be the whole aspect of the day. You're only focused on selfies of you and your kids the whole day. You're missing out the whole aspect of the holiday. That's one small aspect. Yeah, beautiful dress up, very nice. Some people don't even dress up the night of. Some people don't dress up at this holiday. They just dress up the day, a little bit in the morning, a little bit afternoon. That's only one aspect. What about the meal? What about the Megillah? What about Meshach Lana? What about Metanalev Yonim? Don't even get me started about the other aspects, which we will talk about at length coming up soon about the alcohol and the drinking. But in general, we're talking about Hashem in the Purim story. Hashem is behind the scenes, hidden in a mask, saving the Jews behind the scenes. The holiday is much more than just wearing a costume and just wearing a mask. Purim gives us the time to take off our masks and reveal our true self. The Gemara, the Talmud says in Sanhedrin 38a, Rabbi Yehuda and Chizkiah, son of Rabbi Chia, were sitting in a meal before Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, and they were not saying anything. Rabbi Yehuda Anasi said to his servants, Add more wine for the young men so they will say something. Once they were inebriated, they loosened their tongues and said, The sons of David, the Messiah, the, the son of David, the Mashiach, the Messiah, will not come until the two fathers' houses are destroyed from Israel as those two families are preventing the redemption. As are the head of the exile who is in Bavel, the family of the exilarch and the Nasi who is in Eretz Yisrael, the family of Yudah and Nasi, as it is stated in reference to the Mashiach, and he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, for the rock of offense to both the house of Israel. Rabbi Yudah Nasi said to them, My children, do you throw thorns in my eyes? How can you say this in reference to the Nasi himself? Rabbi Chia said to him, My teacher, do not view their behavior in a negative light. Wine is given in letters of 70. The numerical value of the letters in the word yayin, yud, yud, nun, 50, 10, 10, is 70. And secret sod is in letters of 70. Samach, vav, dalad, 60, 6, 4, 70. The numerical value of the letters in the word sod equals yayin, 70, 70. When wine enters, secrets Emerge. Nechnes yayin yatsasod. So right away in the Gemara, we see a reference to the fact wine is not a great thing. Wine is not the best thing. And I will prove it to you, God willing. Wine shouldn't be the main thing ever in your life, ever throughout your days or Shabbat or Yom Tov, but especially on Purim, when it all goes loose, it all goes crazy, and everyone wants to remove their masks and be crazy and have no sense of decency, no sense of proper Kiddush Hashem. But major Chil Hashem, unfortunately, I don't know where it comes from, but we're going to talk about it and explain how we could rein it in and try to make it more functional, more proper. That's just the tip of the iceberg. That's the beginning. Gemara Erevin 65b points out, if wine flows in a person's house like water, there is a blessing. But if not, there is no blessing. But Rabbi Eli said, very important, in three matters, a person's true character is ascertained. His true soul, his true essence is ascertained. Kiso, kaso, koso. His cup, his behavior when he drinks. His pocket, how his conduct is in his financial dealings and giving to other people. And kaso, his anger. So his kos, his cup, his kiso, and his his pocket, Vicasso, and his anger, that is how we really could tell a person's true personality. When a person is inebriated, when a person has wine and alcohol in their system, a lot of times 
throughout my life, my, my wonderful life of 34 years, I've seen many things, especially in yeshiva, especially when we lived in Brooklyn, even around here living in Long Island, I've seen many things, not good things coming from wine and alcohol. It is not good. We see the real conduct, the real personality of a person. We see the true essence of a person. And many times, oftentimes, most times, with alcohol involved, it is not good. And not good sod comes out. The alcohol goes in. What comes out is the puking. Sorry to be graphic, but there are way too many stories from Hatzalah. Too many things, too many things. So a person can be seeing the true essence from their anger, which is something that all of us have to work on, especially myself. One of the many things I work on with my therapist every week. Of course, we talk about the koso, the cup, when a person drinks what really happens to him, and kiso, my favorite one. How generous are we? How giving are we? We talked today on the TTP, the Parsha, about real soulful giving, real soulful instruction. What can we do to be a real generous person, to give from the nefesh, to give from the soul, whether we give a cow or we give a bird, whether we give flower, whether we give a lamb. If it comes from the essence, it comes from the soul, you do what you can, especially on Purim. If it comes from the innards, but you don't need the alcohol, how much more so is that a wonderfully uplifted holiday? You're just joyous. You're happy from itself. It's talking about Aror Haman and Baruch Mordechai. The main thing the halacha is, we're going to touch on it in a minute, is that you can't tell the difference. So there are many ways of doing that. But the essence really is that we want to be joyful on Purim, right? Does that mean that the whole Adar you're drunk? Does that mean that the whole Adar you're drinking? When Adar comes in, you're joyful. Do you need an external substance, a drug, to make you joyful the whole Adar? Why do you need it on Purim? When we have Adra come in, we're supposed to increase our joy, an internal joy, a joy not related to a drink, a joy not related to any aspect of any materialistic external thing. The joy should come inside. Just be happy, joyful, the wonderful day of Purim. Granted, a very stressful day, a difficult day, a busy day, especially for those of us that have little kids trying to get the Mashalach Mana, trying to get to Megillah, trying to catch everybody and make sure that we have the meal and everything and the kids are calm. Very difficult, but very joyous, a very happy holiday, and it doesn't need a drink. It is a wonderful thing. You wonder how you could get about it. Think about being a giving person in general, and it could come to you. I myself, if it's not obvious until now, am not a drinker of alcohol. Not on Purim, not on Simchas Torah, not on Shabbos, not on Yom Tov. Basically, throughout the year, we try to avoid it like the plague, my wife and I. I actually love drinking non-alcoholic drinks. I love sparkling grape juice. The week I forgot to get sparkling grape juice, I literally felt lessened of menuchata nefesh, menuchata guf on Shabbos itself. I will tell you, Shabbos felt a little less joyous. And that's sad because I love the sparkling grape juice. It literally enhances my kiddush. It enhances my havdal. It enhances my... Daytime Kiddush and my nighttime Kiddush, it is like a, a little treat for me. Some people have wine, some people like that. The Gemara talks about it a lot. We're going to talk about it a lot. I myself love sparkling grape juice. It literally makes my Shabbos. I do not like to see what happens in the negative when people consume alcohol on Purim if it's not obvious yet. Not only the terrible behavior and the Chil Hashem in our towns and our communities, not only the damage and destruction. And the loudness, ASB, attention-seeking behavior 
a term that my wife and I coined many years ago. People doing selfish behavior to get negative attention. Damage and destruction I've seen from drunk boys and drunk girls, drunk adults of both genders and men and women, especially I saw in yeshiva days, but also throughout the communities and throughout the years until now, the havoc that has wreaked on people's bodies. Just look at Hatzalah. Hatzalah pleads and begs with people to be careful on Purim. It's mamish pikuach nefesh. It's mamish asakhanat nefesh to the soul, to the body. People go way too overboard. and People don't understand how damaging it is. The question I want you to ask yourself when thinking about removing the masks and revealing your true self, do you really need an external substance to reveal your true self? Do you really need a drug? Alcohol is literally a drug. It's like any other drug. A person can be an alcoholic. He's dependent on it. He needs his next fix of wine. Why is it any different than a needle? He needs his next injection of marijuana or cocaine or, or he needs the next injection of, of an amphetamine, whatever. When am I getting my next drink? It is the same problem, the Havdom, as any of those other things. It's mamish, literally, pashit, a drug. It is literally mamish, a substance that could wreak havoc on your liver, wreak havoc on your body, wreak havoc on yourself. So again, I will ask you to ask yourself, do you really need an external substance to remove your mask and to reveal your true self? Before you drink this perm, and in general in life, think to yourself, do you really need it at all? If you do need it, how much do you really need? I'm going to prove to you, God willing, from the Shulchan Aruch itself. If you don't trust me, trust the Shulchan Aruch, the codified code of Jewish law. Everyone goes by the Shulchan Aruch. And we look at the Ramah to give us the Ashkenazi ruling. And everybody goes by that. And the Mishnah Baruch also, everybody goes by that. You don't trust me? Trust what the Shulchan Aruch says. You're really such a Lamdan. You're really such a Yeshiva Shagai who you're so into the mitzvah on Purim because you're so... Hasidish and you're so Haredi with the mitzvah, you're so Haredi into the aspect, I'm going to do the mitzvah so much so I'm on the floor vomiting. Tell me what the Shulchan Aruch says. Tell me what the text says. Do you know what the text says? Do you actually ever read it? I did. I will prove it to you. I will show it to you in a minute. Think to yourself how much you really need. When and why are you drinking? When is the mitzvah? In what context? Do you know when you're supposed to drink? Do you know why you're supposed to drink at one point of the holiday? I bet you didn't know there's only one time in the entire period where it's actually a mitzvah and actually permitted. Not at nighttime, not in the morning, not after the Purim at nighttime, not even in the middle of the day. It's literally only one time, one time of the entire Purim holiday. I'll tell you, I'll prove it to you, I'll show it to you. Stay with me in a minute. Rabbi Enkin points out on OUTorah.org. The Talmud in Megillah 7b teaches that one is required to get drunk on Purim. Hold on, stay with me. Until one cannot distinguish between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. Aru Haman and Baruch Mordechai. So that's what the Gemara says, right? So everyone says, yes, I'm going to drink till I'm vomiting. No, listen. The reason for this requirement is in order to recall the many miracles of the Purim story which actually occurred during the course of wine parties such as Vashti's downfall, Esther's rise to royalty, and Haman's execution. So literally think about what you're, you're bringing to mind. These terrible parties, that's what you're bringing to mind in your Purim. Haman's drinking wine, Vashti's drinking wine. These are not good stories to invoke in front of Hashem. That also 
happened with wine? Not good things. Achashverosh celebrating. Why did he make a party? Because the Jews were not liberated. The Jews were not redeemed. And he's like, the 70 years that Yirmiyahu devised and, and derived did not come about. Let's make a party. Bring out the, the Kalim of the Mishkan. Bring out the Kohanim's vestments. I'm going to wear them. It was a terrible thing. It's not a good thing. To party with the wine, Achashverosh's party was not a good thing. It was a terrible thing. There was a lot of damage in terms of Avero. Some say there was a ton of immorality there too. And there might have been trafe. Who knows? Definitely not good things happening. How drunk is one supposed to get on Purim? OUTorah.org is saying the Talmud relates. Everyone says, but does anyone think about the next part of the Gemara? Or does anyone just stop when it's convenient? Oh, the Gemara says get drunk. That's it. Read the next piece of Gemara. The next piece, literally. Just read one more line. You would have seen what the Gemara says. Rabbah and Rabbi Zerah once held their Purim Su'udah together. Rabbah became so intoxicated, so drunk at the meal, that he got up and slaughtered Rabbi Zerah as a result of having become so drunk. He killed his friend because of the wine. Slaughtered in quotations because some commentators say he didn't actually kill him. After having become so drunk and slaughtered Rabbi Zerah, not to worry though, the following day Rabbi Bravra paid, prayed for divine mercy and had Rabbi Zerah resurrected. He needed to invoke Tchiat HaMesim because of his use of wine on Purim. Can you imagine such a tragedy and a travesty? All in the sake of a mitzvah, quote-unquote? The following year Rabbi again invited Rabbi Zerah for the Purim Suda. What do you think Rabbi Zerah said? Rabbi Zerah declined the invite explaining that one cannot always expect miracles to occur. One who suspects that their drunkenness could lead to murder or other unacceptable conduct should not drink. And I'm not talking all the way to murder, obviously, but remember, there are different types of murder. One type of murder, Malbim Pnechavero Barabim. It is better, according to the Gemara, to jump into a fire than to mob him, penechavero barab him. It is better to kill yourself. And I'm never, ever, ever advocating that. But metaphorically speaking, it is better to throw yourself in a fire as Marukva and his wife did in the Gemara when, the, when they were collecting charity and the poor person wanted to see who they were. They rather have themselves burned up in the fire than to reveal and make embarrassment to a friend. That is... Is murdered. Changing someone's face in public is as if you're killing them on some level. So yes, if your drunkenness will lead very easily to embarrassing someone else in public, it is better you should not drink. If it's going to lead to any type of unacceptable conduct, you should not drink. Though others are indeed required to intoxicate themselves on Purim, according to many authorities, one is literally required to get drunk on Purim. To the point that one cannot distinguish between curses, Haman, and blesses Mordechai. But, even though this is the practice of many great rabbis, other authorities suggest that the point of intoxication one must reach is simply where one would be unable to recite the ancient liturgical poem of Aror Haman Baruch Mordechai. First of all, that poem is very difficult to read, even when you're fully sober. So if the problem is that we don't want you to be able to recite it, all you have to do is to be a little tired, be a little overexerted, or be a little bit disoriented. 
Very easy to not recite that poem. You want to talk to me about not being able to say the difference between Mordechai and Haman? doesn't have to be that alcohol is the solution. There are very many ways to confuse those words, not involving an external substance. Others suggest one is merely required to drink a little more than usual on Purim, which would bring on drowsiness and cause one to fall asleep. One certainly cannot tell the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai while one is sleeping. That is the easiest thing to fulfill if you're a parent of little children. You stop sleeping the minute you had your first kid. How easy is it to fall asleep even for a minute, five minutes, an hour? You're Yotze Yechiyav. You don't have to have a single thing of alcohol. Five-minute nap. You cannot tell the difference between Mordechai and Haman when you're sleeping. Guaranteed. You were Yotze Yechiyav. Yashakayach. You don't need to do anything else. So you want to tell me about the Shulchan Aruch? You want to tell me about the Gemara? Do you read the whole Gemara? Do you read all the apparities? Yesh mi lismoch. There is one to rely upon where you don't need to destroy your body, destroy your life, destroy your entire Purim day over nonsenseness and nourishkeit of alcohol, garbage. You can easily find yourself disoriented. And for me, who doesn't drink the whole year, technically one drop would do it. But even that I don't want to do. I could just take a little nap, be a little drowsy, very easy with a newborn. We were blessed with a four, our fourth child, a second girl, and in addition to our two boys. I'm very tired. I literally could fall asleep at the snap of a finger. So for me, in general, not even newborn stage, but in general, we're very overworked, very overtired, very easy to be yaitse the chiyav just by taking a nap. So don't tell me the only way to tell the difference between the two is to get so drunk. Are you that Machmir on any other mitzvah in the entire Torah? Are you that machbid and that strict on any other mitzvah in the whole Torah? I've never seen people so, so machbid with a lulav or an eslog where they, they go to the nth degree. You're so above and beyond the name of Shur Sadin that you drink four bottles just to make sure you yodzeh? No way. Do you light candles four times on Hanukkah to make sure you yodzeh to the nth degree? Do you shake your lula 14 times on Sukkot each day just to be sure you yodzeh to the nth degree? So why here, in the quote-unquote context of the mitzvah of drinking, are you so machmir? There are many, many opinions to go by that you could easily fulfill this mitzvah without touching a drop of alcohol, yet nobody thinks to do that. We have terrible conduct. You want to remove your mask? You want to reveal your true self? You don't need the alcohol. You do not need the wine. You do not need to go about things in such a debased way, so easily seen, unfortunately, in all of our communities. There are many ways, yesh mi how to figure it out. There exists a very different approach to the issue of drinking on Purim as well. According to some authorities, one should in fact not drink on Purim at all. Indeed, it is suggested that the entire reason that the Talmud troubled itself to record the story of Rabbah killing Rabbi Zer was in order to show us precisely why we should not drink on Purim. Think about that. Contrary to popular misconception, the mitzvah of drinking on Purim is intended to be performed exclusively with wine to the exclusion of all other alcoholic beverages, not schnapps, not scotch, not bourbon, not whiskey, nothing else, only wine, and only one time of the entire day. It is also noted that drinking wine on Purim is meant to be reminiscent of the verse, wine gladdens the heart of man. If you don't like wine, it doesn't help you. You are not gladdening the heart of man, and it's not doing the mitzvah. 
for you. Some authorities suggest that because wine was a much stronger drink in Talmudic times than it is today, it is permissible to drink whiskey and other alcoholic beverages in fulfillment of mitzvahs as well. So too, the drinking is meant to take place specifically within the context of only the Purim Seuda. Very important line. People think that you could take this ad lib and it could be for the entire Purim and Shushan Purim and Shabbos afterwards. Why not? No. The only context that is the mitzvah is only in the context of the Purim Seuda itself. So if your meal is at 4 o'clock, why in the world are you drinking at 11 a.m.? Your meal is at 4.30, why are you drinking 11 p.m. the night before? Has nothing to do with the mitzvah and only for your selfishness and debasedness. Has nothing to do with the context. Don't use it as an excuse for a drinking spree throughout the day. Do not tell me it's a mitzvah on all of Purim. It is not. It is only in the Seuda. People that are dancing around, jumping around, making so much noise, excessive noise in your whole town, has nothing to do with the mitzvah. Nothing to do with the mitzvah. It should not be an excuse for a drinking spree throughout the day. The mitzvah of drinking is in effect only on Purim day. There is no mitzvah to drink on Purim night, especially not in the context of the Seuda. I would say not even in the morning, literally in the Seuda. Here also exists what seems to be somewhat of a compromise approach to the requirement of drinking on Purim. Some authorities suggest that drinking is merely recommended, but not truly required. Likewise, one who has a weak disposition, like myself, very low tolerance, so knocked it out many years ago already, or otherwise feel that drinking will harm him, I definitely believe drinking for myself, my wife, and many others would be, do more harm than good. One who feels that drinking will harm him is exempt from the requirement to drink. One is also not permitted to drink excessively on Purim if one fears that it may lead to violating or being unable to fulfill other mitzvot such as reciting the Brachat HaMazon or davening after one's Purim meal or davening Mar of the night following Purim. Indeed, in such situations it is far better for one not to drink at all. So Shlaimi goes out. And I'm making this name up. He drinks the whole night, Mrs. Marav. Drinks the whole morning, Mrs. Mincha. Drinks the whole afternoon, sleeps off the entire Purim, Mrs. Marav. Do you think he was Yotze any mitzvah? Do you think it was better for him to not drink at all? If you're going to miss any mitzvah, you're going to mess up your day. You're going to cause a chilah Hashem. There is no mitzvah for you to drink on Purim. I'm not a rabbi, although I did get smicha last year. Reb Tani, you could call me. Rabbi Tani, if you want. I would say I'm not a posig, but in this area, I feel so strongly that it is so disturbing what happens on Purim all over the place. Look at the halacha. Look at what it says. If you're going to miss a mitzvah, you're going to destroy yourself, destroy something else, you're going to violate other mitzvahs, you're going to violate averos. You're going to destroy yourself and you're going to harm yourself, your family, anyone's around you. There is no mitzvah to drink at all. Can you tell me that you will meet all those parameters? You're going to make it to every meal. You're going to be on your best behavior. You're not going to cause a chal Hashem. You're not going to hurt yourself. It's not going to damage yourself. You could tell me any of those things. It's very hard to make all those parameters. You know your limits so much that you're not going to be tipsy. You're not going to be a foolish dad, a bad dad, a bad husband, the whole Purim. Very, very difficult. So I ask you, I implore you again, why do people 
drink on Purim? Why do people excessively drink on Purim? What shita are they relying on at nighttime? What shita, what opinion are they relying on in the morning? What shita are they relying on post-Purim? And what shita they're relying on at 1 p.m. in the middle of the afternoon when no one has their suda, everyone's delivering Mishlach Manot, who are they relying on? Do you have a different Shulchan Aruch than I do? Do you have a different Mishnah Brewer than I do? Who are you relying on to drink during the day? 10 o'clock in the morning, what are you doing? Who are you relying on? What Mishnah Brewer are you reading? Outside of the suda at nighttime, no mitzvah. I don't know where you saw such a sheet to rely upon. I myself do not drink, period. I see many authorities for myself and for others to rely upon for this. If you want your secrets to come out, talk to a mentor, talk to a therapist, talk to someone. I talk to someone every week. Carte blanche, I am not embarrassed. I am very proud that I found someone to help me deal with my own things every week. 45 minutes, better yet. Use the Gemara, but other aspects to show your true character. You want to show your true self? You want to remove your mask? Show it with your kiso. Show your true aspect of how giving, how generous, how selfless you could be. With your wallet, other sheet to say, with your laughter, people see your true essence. Show it with your laughter. Show it how you could be a comic, funny person in a proper way. Not with your anger. Sometimes... The alcohol brings out such anger and such abuse, and it's not a good thing to have the alcohol. Why do you think alcoholics are violent? Many people have the two connected. An alcoholic could be, an abuser could be very violent. Why test with such a thing? How do you know how you're going to respond to it? Oh, yeah, I drank seven times in the past, and each time was so great. Each time you're playing with fire. You're playing with dangerous substances. You're playing with dangerous materials. I implore you, think it over. Why are you really doing this? Who are you really applying upon? You want to be involved in real good mitzvahs of Purim Day? Get involved in the beauty of the day, the joy of the day, without need for drink. Dress up, wear costumes, do themes. We love themes in my house. Every year we have a different theme. My wife thought of a theme each year. This year she thought of another beautiful one. Do shalach manos, do gifts for the poor. Listen intently with your kids to Megillah. You want to mess up Purim Day for your family? Get drunk. Be an absentee father. Be an absentee husband. See how that goes for you. See what it does to your family and the fabric of the Jewish community. What a waste of a day. Your wife finds you lying on the sidewalk drunk and drooling out of your mouth. What kind of a nonsense, narsh, kind of horrible example are you for someone else? For your children. What if your children found you on the front lawn, passed out, during Purim Day. What kind of example are you showing for your, for your children? What disgusting behavior? What terrible behavior? That's what you're showing is the essence of the day. That's what they're going to remember every year about their dad on Purim. Ugh, I really hate doing Purim. It's so easy for the kids to get turned off, off the derach, just from seeing that one terrible negative image. I can never do Purim again because I used to always see my dad pass out on the front lawn drool out of his mouth, and he would waste away the whole day. What a terrible way to destroy your children's future. So easy to turn off a child nowadays from Judaism. You want to mess up your family? You want to mess up the day? Go ahead. But you want to be re- involved in real good mitzvahs of the day? There are no shortage of beautiful things to do on Purim. No shortage. Hashem gives us a plethora of beautiful things. Machas is a shekel, Matanot Levyonim, Megillah, Davening. 
prayer. Do you know Purim is Yom Kippurim? Yom Kippur is seen as Purim because Purim is such a beautiful Nevenahapachu. It's a real day of prayer. How many people are involved actually in beautiful prayer when they're half drunk or fully drunk? You lose out on a beautiful opportunity to dive into Hashem and talk to Hashem. Okay, yeah, some people really are extra spiritual when they're drunk. But are you really connecting to Hashem if you can't even put two words together? You're not even allowed to daven and bench when you're drunk. You're allowed to dive into Hashem. When you're drunk, you're allowed to talk to Hashem. When you're drunk, I don't think so. Be involved in the real self, your true self. Have a beautiful day full of beautiful mitzvahs. Don't put these dangerous, crazy substances of alcohol in your body. The Talmud also points out how careful you have to be with wine and alcohol to begin with. Sanhedrin 78. Rava talks about that it says wine gladdens the heart of man. The wine, the word for gladness could be read, read as yeshama, meaning wine makes one crazy. But we read it as yeshama, gladdens the heart. The matter could be explained as follows. If one merits and drinks a moderate amount of wine, it gladdens him, misameha. Whereas, excuse me, if he does not merit and drinks excessively, it makes him crazy, mishamehu. This mishagas, mishuga. This is what Rava meant when he said, "Wine and fragrant spices have made me wise." Controlled drinking of wine is beneficial to the drinker. A visitor from the Galilee expounded the converse of Vav is stated thirteen times in the passage concerning wine by Noach. And Noach vayahel became a farmer. He planted vayita a vineyard, and he drank vayisht of the wine, and he was drunk vayishkar, and he was uncovered vayig. Vayiv Vigtal, within his tent, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw Vayar, the form of his father, he told Vayigade, his two brothers outside, Shemin Yafes took Vayikach, the garment, and laid it Vayasimu upon both their shoulders, and went Vayelechu, all the vavs here, backward, and covered Vayakasu, the form of their father, and their faces were backward, they didn't see the form. Noah awoke Vayikats from his wine, and he knew Vayeda, what his younger son did. All 13 instances of the conversive Vav here are followed by the letter Yud. Together they form the word Vav, meaning woe, 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 and allude to the suffering and misfortune caused by uncontrolled drinking. You don't trust me, trust the Shulchan Aruch. You don't trust me, trust the Talmud. You don't trust me, trust the Agarita. This is not me talking. These are the sources. You can't do better than Jewish sources. You want to be so nitpicky and so in tune with being so excessive above and beyond involved in drinking then at least give credence to the sources where you think the mitzvah is coming from at least look at the sources look at the ideas where it comes from don't tell me you only look at one part of the gemara but not the rest that's like looking at half of judaism and not the rest that's ridiculous that's crazy don't get pulled in into the wine or the alcohol be careful better yet Avoid it at all costs. There are so many other ways to be yodzei, to be yodzei, the one small aspect of the drinking mitzvah of the day. The real mitzvahs are the Megillah, the Seuda, the Shalach Manos, the gifts for the poor. I know the song is very catchy and very wonderful, but there are very other ways to be v'yasume. Adeloyada ben Aramordechai le. The Ar, excuse me, Chas V'Shalom. Bein Ar Haman, the Baruch Morach. I see there, I already messed it up, and I'm not even drunk. I'm not even needing alcohol. I'm just tired. And it's easy to be discombobulated. See how easy it is to mess up Ar Haman and Baruch Morach. You don't even need a touch of alcohol. I don't even need to sleep. I'm speaking, and I couldn't even do it. So don't tell me the only way 
is with the alcohol. Focus on the real essence of the day, the real mitzvahs of the day. The Gemara goes on to explain the verse, Noach became the farmer, he planted the vineyard. Rav Chista says to Rav Ukva says, and some says, Bar Ukva says, and Rabbi Zakai says, Hashem says to Noach, shouldn't you have learned from Adam, whose banishment from the garden was caused by wine? The tree from which Adam had was a grapevine, and Adam, you know, Chava, they had a major sin. The whole humanity because of them has labor pains and has to work the earth and has the death sentence of life. That's all because of wine. Couldn't you learn from Adam and now Noah, his generation, also had a major blunder with wine. Just learn from two of our originators of humanity how destructive wine is to stay away from it. Sanhedrin 70b, nothing except wine brings wailing and trouble upon a person. Most sins are caused by drunkenness. You don't have to look more than two steps outside on Purim and other times of the year Simchas Torah also ridiculous there is no mitzvah in the entire Torah that shows that on Simchas Torah you should be drinking wine you're supposed to be joyous with the Torah it has nothing to do with alcohol why do you need an external to be happy why do you need an external to be joyous did you need to drink a, a cup of wine to be joyous when your son was born when your daughter was born when you were under the chuppah so why do you need it to dance with the Torah why do you need it on Purim true joy true happiness comes from within not an external substance of a drink, not an external substance of a, a, a liver damaging substance. True simcha is from the inside. Nothing except wailing comes from wine. Brachos 29b. The Gemara discusses the traveler's prayer when Elijah, one of my favorite prophets of all time, one of my favorite characters of the entire Tanakh, comes to Rabbi Yehuda. Brother Rav Salah Hasida, do not get angry, you will not sin. Do not get drunk and you will not sin. You want to not sin, avoid the drinking. You want to not sin, avoid the anger. Anger is a major problem for all of us, but drunkenness, alcohol, very easily avoidable. On the other hand, one who is intoxicated with wine must not pray. He's not allowed to pray. If he did pray, the Gemara says his prayer is an abomination. Hashem doesn't use that word often. And if he does, it's not for good things like a mamzer and whatnot. His prayer, if he is intoxicated with wine, is not allowed to be counted as part of a minion. He's not allowed to bench probably. He's not allowed to do many things. His prayer with wine in him is an abomination. What are the circumstances where a person is considered one who has drunk wine? And what are the circumstances where it's considered one who is intoxicated with wine? One who has drunk wine refers to anyone who has drunk wine, but whose mind is clear enough that he's able to talk in the presence of a king. One who is intoxicated refers to anyone who is so disoriented by the wine, he can't even talk in the presence of a king. Listen to this. Rabbi Abramowitz points out from Hashona Halachos 142.6, you don't trust the Tanakh, you don't trust the Talmud, you don't trust the Shulchan Aruch. At least listen to a, a, a recent rabbi on an article recently from Hashona Halachos. The poor miracles wrought about through wine. Vashi was deposed through a banquet of wine caused by her to be replaced by, by Esther. Haman's downfall was brought about through wine. Therefore, we're obligated to celebrate by drinking wine. The Talmud in Miguel 7b we talked about says a person is obligated to drink on Purim until he doesn't know the difference between curses, Haman, and blesses Mordechai. One should at least drink more than he usually does in commemoration of the Purim miracle than fall asleep. Fall asleep. While he is sleeping, he certainly won't know the difference between curses, Haman, and blesses Mordechai. The Mishnah Brura in 695. 
Five, I implore you, I challenge you, look up Mishnah Baruch 695. Look up Shulchan Aruch, Orachayim 695. Tell me what the text says. Tell me all the shittas brought down, especially by the Ramah, who is the premier Ashkenazic posik that we go by for the code of Jewish law. The Mishnah Brura in 695.5 approves of the course of action of going to sleep to not know the difference. One whose nature is weak or knows that if he overindulges, he will likely come to treat some mitzvah, bracha, or tefillah lightly, or who knows he will behave improperly, inappropriately, should not drink so much. By not drinking, all of his actions will be considered for the sake of heaven. I'd much rather... Be fully cognizant, fully sober. Know that my actions are mekadashim shemayim. My actions are a from Jew, a good Jew, a good husband, a good dad, a good friend. Then tachas v'shalom chalila v'chas have even the inkling of a nature that I'm being mechalashim shemayim b'parhesya in public. By not drinking, your actions will be the sake of heaven. Wine causes more problems than it solves. Avoid it to avoid problems at all costs. Just take a small nap. Don't ask your wife for an hour and a half, even 20 minutes, a shinat arai. A small nap when you're so asleep that you're, that you're not cognizant, you wake up and you're disoriented. You fulfill the mitzvah. <laughs> Boom. Take a small nap. Instead, just take a sip. If you're so, so pulled, you're so needy of the drink, take a tiny sip. So you don't trust Rabbi Abramowitz, you don't trust the Talmud, you don't trust the sources Shulchan Orach, Orachayim 695. I implore you, I challenge you, I implore you, look at the text of the Shulchan Orach. The Ramah says it is a mitzvah, Orachayim 695. People get their smicha from Shulchan Orach, Orachayim, Yoridea, Yorayora, Evan Ezer, Choshemishpat, Orachayim, straight up, 695. Ramah says it is a mitzvah to many feasts during Purim. To have feasts during Purim, but one fulfills his obligation with only one feast. The Mordechai points out, one who does the Purim meal at night does not fulfill his obligation. Ramah says, nevertheless, one should be happy and add more during his meal even at night. Here we go. Orachayim, 695, Shulchan Aruch, the premier source from what people say they're supposed to get drunk. Listen to this. Straight up, I did not make this up. This is literally from the Shulchan Aruch. I beg you, look it up yourself inside. Shulchan Aruch Orachayim 695, number two. One is obligated to be intoxicated on Purim to the point where he does not know the difference between a curse is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. Boom. That's the stop. That's the source. Ah, we found it. This is the source. The Kodesh HaKadoshim of Purim. Get drunk. That's it. I'm done. I close the Shulchan Aruch. No. Next word, Ramah. Look what it says next. First of all, by the way, the Shulchan Aruch was written by who? Rav Yosef Karo. Who is Rav Yosef Karo? The premier posik for the Sephardim. The Shulchan Aruch is written by a Sephardi, and he bases a lot of his halachos on the Rambam. The Rambam was of Sephardi nature. Sephardim very often look at them. I'm not talking about the people who are like uber, uber, uber into Rambam across the world, who only look at the Rambam. The premier source for our posik is not the Rav Yosef Karo. The idea is Rav Moshe Israelis the premier Ashkenazi posik. So why are you going according to what the Shulchan Aruch says without factoring in the Ramah? The next word, if you just open the book and you open your eyes for five more seconds, you would realize you're not even reading according to our premier posik for Ashkenazim. Ramah, 
Some say it is not necessary to become drunk so much, but rather drink more than he's used to, kolbo, and to fall asleep. And while he sleeps, he does not know the difference between a cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. Boom! Shot! Done! End! We're done here. That's it. Fall asleep. Drink more than you're used to. So if someone every so often drinks a cup, drink a cup and a half. Someone every so often drinks a half a cup, drink a cup. Ramah straight up says there is an opinion that you can rely on. You drink a little more than you're used to. So don't tell me that you're supposed to get uber, uber, uber drunk. First of all, you're not even reading the Ramah. Second of all, you're not even following the proper opinion. When we go by Shulchan Aruch in general, we go by what the Ramah says. So don't read only what Rav Yosef Karo says. Read what the Ramah says. There's no difference on Purim between one who has more and one who has less as long as his heart is directed to heaven. So you think I'm doing any less of a mitzvah than you because I don't drink? Absolutely not. If my heart is dedicated to heaven, I believe my Purim can be even better than yours, and I don't like saying better, but if your Purim is wasted away by being inebriated and drunk and being a bad dad and a bad husband, being a bad Jewish person, wasting your day, I believe... You could have solved it by avoiding the drinks. If my heart is dedicated to heaven, dedicated to Hashem, that's how you could be really happy. Be fully cognizant and sober. You have control over your body. Don't let the alcohol have control over you. One is obligated to drink a little and be a little happy on the two days, the 14th and the 15th, minhag, and that's a custom. So the Orachayim straight up is telling you what I've been telling you for 49 minutes. You need to understand what the aspect of the day is. Don't just read the first line and forget the rest of the paragraph. That's right. That's like reading the first sentence of the Declaration of Independence, Lahavda, 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 and forgetting the whole rest of the paragraph. We believe in the right to liberty, life, and... No, nope, I'm not going to read the rest. There's no such thing as pursuit of happiness. There's no such thing as understanding that these rights are inherent to every individual, and so be, so be it, because you only read the first line. I don't care about happiness. I don't care about giving everybody what they want. There's no such thing as the rest of the paragraph, right? If you're a person that reads the first line and nothing else, you're in for a rude awakening because you're missing out on everything. Would you ever read the midst of Hanukkah, just the first sentence and not the whole paragraph? One is obligated to light. Oh, that's it. What are you obligated to light? What are you obligated to do? You're missing out on a ton of things. The Ramah says straight up, drink a little more than usual, go to sleep. If you're going to desecrate anything, avoid it at all costs. The Gemara also says in Megillah 7b, You fulfill two mitzvahs if you send portions one to another and gifts to the poor. Rabbi Oshia was poor and was a substantial gift to be able to do that. The Gemara goes on to say that Shalach Manus, if it's hard for you to go lavish, go simple. Story explains, Abayah said one time, the explanation was that the, the folk saying of the people was that the poor man is hungry and does not know it. As Abayah was unaware how hungry he had been in his master's house. Another expression, there's room for sweets, can always be room for sweets. Sometimes you have to understand you can't be too lavish, you can't be over, above, and beyond, and that's all mitzvahs and Purim. Some people spend way too much in shachmanos with the glass plates and this and that, $100 per shachmanos, and they give it to 100 people. You'll be in the poorhouse faster than you could say boo. Crazy. Make sure to understand how to do things. H.com points out from common pakuas during the day of only Purim. Besides reading the Megillah and the usual mitzvah of davening, sitzes and the like, we fulfill three mitzvahs. What are the mitzvahs we do on Purim? Matan of Yonim, the gifts of money to at least two poor people, whereas Mishloach Manot is only one gift to one person. 
giving at least two ready-to-eat foods to one person, excuse me, two foods to one person, or money to two people. That's the difference. Mishloach mana. You could do it by messenger. And having a su'udah, the festive meal, where at only the meal, talking about the drinking of the wine, or knowing the difference between Mordechai and Haman, you could also fulfill it by drinking a little and taking a nap. One doesn't know the difference between them while napping. Why are we instructed to drink this amount? You have to understand what you're instructed to do so. H.com points out from Yisrael Jiskowitz. On Purim, we dress up with masks and costumes, the seemingly superficial customs laden with deeper meaning. On Purim, we remember that in the world, nothing is as it seems. The real world lies beneath all of the superficiality. In fact, the words of Megillat Esther, the scroll of Esther, also means to reveal Megale, Megillat, Megale, Megale. In Hebrew, the hidden, Hester. Purim's story peels back the mask and reveals that which is hidden. Many of the main characters in the Esther story wear masks, not identifying who they really are or what their true motives are. Haman pretends to have only the king's best interests at mind. By the way, Ahasuerus is always treated as a puppet and like he wasn't so bad. If you look at the Gemara in Megillah, you look at the Gemara, we did it a couple of Masechtas ago in Daf Yomi, Ahasuerus was really not a good guy. He himself hated the Jews also. He was just looking for a pretense for someone to get rid of this Jewish quote-unquote problem, which we've seen many times in history, especially in World War II. He wasn't a good guy either. But, of course, alas, Hashem prevailed. Even though they wanted to destroy the Jews, Ahasuerus and Haman the Amalekite, Hashem took care of it and took care of the bad guys. Mordechai never reveals he is a relative and a friend of Esther, pretends to be a simple person who happened to save the king's life. Esther reveals to the king that Mordechai is her dear relative. Of course, Esther herself wears a mask. She pretends to be Gentile, never revealing her really Jewish identity until the very end. The master of the universe, Hashem, wears a mask. Hashem's name is never mentioned in the entire Megillah, except So that could be an allusion to Hashem, but Hashem's name is not actually there in the entire story. There are no open miracles. It's all hidden. The Talmud alludes to this as well. The Talmud says, where Esther minat Torah minayin. Where do we know that there's a hint to Esther? From the verse, Anochi aster haster mipanai. And Haman Menatora Hamin Ha'etz. The Yetzirah is like Haman. Evil, evil, evil. Those are the two allusions to Purim in the story. The name Esther comes from Aster, hidden. Hashem is hidden throughout the story. It's up to us to see his hand. That's the irony. Haman is trying to deny the hand of God and everything and write in the same story. God is showing that he is orchestrating the whole story. When we read Megillus Esther, we are revealing that which is hidden, revealing God's guiding hand, even in natural occurrences. Perm shows us the entire world is a mask. The real world is underneath the surface. So often in life we wear masks, avoid, avoiding our true selves, afraid to show our true selves. On Purim, we wear the mask purposefully to expose it what it truly is, nothing more than a facade. We drink, some people drink to show the inner spiritual joy. I implore you to find your own spiritual joy without needing a drink. We read the Megillah to see the hidden hand of God revealed once and for all. Talmud compares our exile to night. Parham to dawn, for when dawn comes, all is revealed, and what happens to be dark is now in sunlight. Let us remember this as the beautiful message of Parham. Rabbi Khan points out on Aish, have you ever been in a situation in which you were afraid to reveal who you really are? Have you ever felt as if you were wearing a mask and dressed up like someone else? This can happen to individuals, but also to a nation. One of the results of living in a new place is acculturation. Even when this process is not taken to the extreme level of assimilation, there's this heavy price to be paid. 
Even mild acculturation can set off an existential crisis. That's what happened to many Jews 2,500 years ago. Strangers in a strange land, they did what they felt they had to do to fit in. Yet the forces of socialization posed a threat to Jewish society in so many places, so many times, that really the story of Esther transcends all time to each place. The book of Esther is what is described as interesting times. A new dictator comes to power. As a result of a bloody coup, Ahasuerus celebrating his many conquests and the acculturated Jews finding them at the center of a celebration of epic proportions. Not a good celebration, not for good reasons. Participation was not optional. Those who were abstained were in trouble. Imagine the discomfort when they heard about the subjugation of Jerusalem when Ahasuerus appears before subjects rowdy and drunk dressed in the garments of the high priest of the Jews using the utensils from the Beit HaMikdash. They must have felt very awkward at the least and very upset at the most. And beyond, he shed his costume, showing that he really did not have their good ideas at heart, usurping the role, taking himself to this to the forefront, basically mocking and making fun of the Jewish people. But the Jews were also in costume, but they didn't understand. They were in costume. They were dressed like the citizens of Shushan, but really, they were involved in the in the meal, and they might have been a little too cozy in the meal, a little too happy with the meal. They were very acculturated, unfortunately, but they had to wake up. They had to understand what was going on. Queen Vashti had her own ball also, and they they were having their own party. Ahasuerus demands that she comes. She refuses to come, and she refuses to be treated in front of other people in such a way. So the king was very upset. He got rid of her. He looks for a new queen. His advisors come up with a plan, a beauty contest, and, and they find who they find. Esther was finally chosen. She lived in Shushan, she comes, she hides her name, she hides her identity, she's of course in costume for a very long time, until she reveals herself at the end, of course. Haman himself was a crazy, crazy, vengeful person. One person doesn't bow down to him and he wants to destroy the whole nation. Is that a normal reaction, by the way? He's a megalomaniac. One person doesn't bow down. Mordechai, thousands of people bow down. One person, he can't take it. He cannot take it. One person destroys his res- his resolve to, to have any sanity and goes full frontal destroying the entire Jewish people. But of course, Mordechai comes and he saves the king from the plot of Big Son and Seresh. Haman wants to have his revenge, but at that time, the, the annals of the king come and Mordechai comes before the king needing to be recuperated, re- re- recounted and, and, and needing to be taken care of, and Haman is the one that has to do it himself. Very interesting how there's so much going on in the story, so much costumes, so much clothing, so much going on behind the scenes. And Esther finally knows what she's going to do. She comes before the king, she asks for the party, and then asks for another party. She finally gets to the stage, and she sets off the plan of motion to get rid of Haman on the very gallows that Haman had. Very interesting plot, if you ever think about it. You know, very interesting to think about the whole aspect of the of the story. And if we ever actually sit and think about it, it's really a nine-year story. And it's a really interesting story where masks are removed throughout the party. Haman has finally revealed who he really is. Esther's finally revealed who she really is. Ahasuerush, you know, not fully revealed, although really not such a great guy. You know, Mordechai wasn't allowed to be with Esther as a married couple after this. Really sad. But the goal is to find our true clothing, our true selves as individuals and as a nation. We want to make sure to truly, in our time, understand how we're supposed to be.
Rabbi Black points out on H.com, Purim masks and protective masks are different, but there is a connection. Think about the idea of Purim. Masks hide what's behind them. That's why masks are filled with the story of Purim. The scroll of Esther is unique. It tells about Esther Mordechai. It doesn't talk about God. He's hiding. Of course, he's behind the scenes. The book's title is given to Esther. Why Esther? And where is she to be found in the Torah? So we talk about Anochi Haster Aster. I will hide myself. The hiding is Haster Aster, the root of the letters of the name of Esther. That's the genius of the Talmudic rabbis to recognize Esther as a hidden way of identifying God's presence. In the Megillah, the story is performed by Hashem, but his name is absent, hidden, many, many times. The mitzvah of reading Esther is to understand Hashem is hiding behind the scenes. Hashem is wearing a mask. We have to rip off the mask to see that he's there, but Hashem is always there. Even though on Passover, which is coming up after Purim, although nobody likes to think about it, Passover is loud, in your face. We see the miracles abound. Purim is behind the scenes. Purim is behind the mask. We need to remember the story behind the scenes of the genocidal plot against us. We think about how we're hiding. We think about how there are masks. We think about revealing ourselves, the true selves, without needing any external substance. Reveal yourself with the real, true spiritual joy that is involved and realizing that you can rip off the mask easily without needing any external substance. H.com points out with Debbie Debbie Godfront, excuse me, there are different masks we have. We should take them off on perm. The mask of self-containment, the mask of busyness, the mask of materialism, and the mask of doubt. We're too busy. We don't want to be needy. We don't want to be dependent. We're so, so busy. We're so involved in materialism. Take these things away on perm. Take these things away in life. Don't be so doubtful. Don't be so uncertain. Un- understand we need to have a muna and bitachon in Hashem. Listen to the book of Esther. Learn from it how to slow down, not to be too busy. Learn how not to be so doubtful. Learn not how to be so worried and so involved in materialism. Learn to be really spiritual. Learn to understand everything comes from Hashem and everything is chosen for us. Eshtakam also points out to us it's easy to be intimidated by mean people. See through their mask. Underneath it is insecure and unhappy people. Understand to have a compassion for people. Not pity, not condemning, but compassion. Feel for others suffering. Understand that people are wearing a mask. Bullies really are insecure deep down. Understand to help people change. Compassion really is one of the best ways to do. Imuna Braverman points out on H.com, doesn't everybody love to dress up on Purim? Not actually everyone, but many people love to dress up. Why is that? Because it gives us the ability to hide ourselves, to dress in something else. Costumes also lead to unity, to togetherness. Disguises mask the differences that block us. And everybody knows they were all, excuse me, dressing up on Purim. The Jewish people uniting was a crucial ingredient in saving the nation of the Jewish people of the Purim story. Put away the differences. Unite together. The costume doesn't have to be fancy. We don't have to spend a lot of money. Taking the advantage of the holiday of Purim and the costume wearing, not just for the children, but to come together to remember who we are, to see who we are. Give nachas to our Heavenly Father. Understand to have our true self show, even if we're wearing a mask, even if we're wearing a costume. But don't use externalities or external substances to try to reveal your joy. Let the joy come anyway. Rabbi Moskowitz points out from H.com, an amazing book, his favorite book, and a big favorite book of mine also is Wonder, which was made into an excellent, excellent movie, in which R.J. Palacio tells this fictional story of Augie Pullman, a 10-year-old boy just like anyone you know. He eats ice cream, rides his bike, plays ball, and has a great sense of humor. But the moment 
older people look at him, they avert their eyes. Little kids get scared and start screaming or saying something nasty and hurtful. Augie was born with numerous genetic abnormalities, and after 27 surgeries, he still has facial disfigurations so pronounced that people who see him for the first time quickly look away to try to manage their shock and horror. When describing his face, he writes, Whatever you're thinking, it's probably worse. Augie begins his tale by introducing himself. I know I'm not an ordinary 10-year-old kid. I mean, sure, I do ordinary things. I feel ordinary inside. But I know ordinary kids don't make other ordinary kids run away screaming in playgrounds. I know ordinary kids don't get scared wherever they go. If I found a magic lamp and I could have one wish, I would wish that I had a normal face that no one ever noticed at all. I would wish I could walk down the street without people seeing me and looking away. Here's what I think. The only reason I'm not ordinary is that no one else sees me that way. He describes the one day a year he gets to wear a mask. For them, Halloween is the best holiday for him in the world. He gets to dress up in a costume. He gets to wear a mask. He goes around like every other kid with a mask. Nobody thinks he looks weird. Nobody takes a second look. Nobody notices him. Nobody knows him. He wishes every day could be just like that. We could all wear a mask all the time. Then we could walk around and get to know each other before we got to see what we look like under the masks. Despite the obvious challenges that come with wearing a mask, perhaps Augie's right. Maybe there is an enormous upside to it besides the health benefits. When we wear masks, when we disguise and minimize what we look at to the outside, only then can we really get to know the real person. We can see people for their substance, for who they truly are, and not focus on trivial externalities. We could all focus on what's inside a person, beneath the surface of what truly matters. Or say to yourselves, don't dunk at the jug. Don't look at the jug, rather look what's inside. Otherwise known as secular society taking this phrase and saying, don't judge a book by its cover. If only we could look into the contents of the jar. Instead of making assumptions based on looks and appearances, how much better and more civilized would our society be? That's why we need to use people first, person first language. It's not the kid in the wheelchair. It's a child who happens to need to use a wheelchair. It's not the Down syndrome kid. The child that happens to have Down syndrome. Don't judge him. Based on the fact that you see that he looks like he has Down syndrome, there's 99,000 other things going on. Don't judge me based on what you think you know about me. You don't know me. You don't know my house. You don't know what's going on with my family or whatnot. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge a jug. Look what's inside. Too often we focus and judge people on their externalities. We make snap decisions about whether or not we like a person or trust a person based solely on how they look with complete disregard for who they are. Perhaps wearing masks can help shift our focus away from externalities and instead toward an emphasis on meaningful interactions. The next time you pick up a mask or you go somewhere, think about, wouldn't it be great if we look past externalities or which we regularly judge each other? Wouldn't it be great if we heeded Augie Palman's advice and get to know each other before we saw what we look like under the masks? How much wonderful would that be? How much more warm and welcoming would that be and would it look like to other people? Listen to this fascinating story from H.com from Eve Levy. I apologize we're going late, but it's a fascinating topic, a very near and dear topic to me, and I hope you stay with me for a few more stories and the like. So Eve Levy explains this story in H.com. A few years ago, God sent the author a test. One chilly February night, her husband Gadi and her were joyously dancing at the wedding of close friends. They came home tired but happy. Her husband had been complaining of an earache that day and even had a doctor at the wedding take a look in his ear. There wasn't much they could do for his discomfort, and he eventually fell asleep. She woke up the next morning and started getting the kids ready for school, preparing lunches, and doing the usual busy morning activities. I can relate to that. Everyone can relate to that. 
She noticed her husband was still in bed. This was unusual. He usually wakes up early to go to school. She gently tried to wake him and even then went back to helping the kids get ready for the school. The husband said, I cannot close my eye. I cannot move my face. I can't smile. That's when she heard him call her. Something strange is happening to me. I can't close my eyes. I can't move my face. I can't smile. Sure enough, there was her husband sitting up in bed, trying to wiggle his face, but only half his face had any movement. After a quick Google search, usually I don't recommend Google, a lot of scary things come. They self-diagnose the situation as Bell's palsy, very famous, where basically half the face is in palsy, is not able to be used. Very scary. It could be a cranial nerve damage problem. A form of facial paralysis causes an inability to control facial muscles on the affected side. Often the eye cannot close. They read that 10% of people with Bell's palsy do not fully recover. Gotti's eyes were red and tearing from the dryness. His face looked scary. Lahavdil, kind of like Augie Lahavdil. He tried to smile, to, even though it's not a real character. He tried to smile to show it was going to be okay, and she burst out crying. She was in a state of shock. She was waiting for him to just snap out of this, but he didn't. He couldn't. She begged him to get back into bed and rest. At the time, he was under a lot of stress, and they read that Bell's palsy is often stress-induced. She told him to get back into bed and rest. She would make an appointment with his doctor. He remained in bed. She left to take the kids to school and carry on with the day. A few hours later, he walked into the office of the JCC to prepare for his class. When she saw him, she jumped out of her seat. He looked awful. She was horrified for people to see him looking like that. Horrified for him. Horrified for herself. She wanted him to hide until everything went back to normal. Maybe you should put a big brown paper bag over your head, she said half-jokingly. But Gotti wasn't embarrassed. He just wanted to carry on with life as usual. The next day, Gotti was planning to give the class to her Thursday ladies lunch and learn. She felt so uncomfortable. He taped a black pirate's patch over his eye and kept falling off. She told him he could take a rain check. He insisted on teaching as if nothing was wrong. He had to hold up half of his face in order to not slur his words. She sat there in her friend's living room holding back her tears. The women in the class were throwing pitying glances to her. But Gotti forged on, giving the entire class. She sat there feeling so miserable about her husband's appearance, yet she also felt such pride in his refusal to give in to that ailment and not to let it get him down. Her emotions were on a roller coaster. She was both saddened and impressed. This continued for six long weeks. The doctors, and they saw quite a few, said it was impossible to know how long the symptoms would last. They were hopeful she would recover. He would recover, but it was going to take time. He was very weak, needed to rest a lot. He was taking heavy steroid medications, undergoing acupuncture. I would have said that he should got OT. As challenging as it was on him, she was the one who was taking it terribly hard. She cried so much during those weeks, she was a complete wreck. Even though her husband looked quote-unquote ugly on the outside, he was still wonderful, kind, and gentle on the inside. But the kids barely noticed it. They loved their father just the same. What a lesson for us to learn, by the way. They loved their father just the same, regardless of what he looked like. They weren't frightened or repulsed by his looks. They snuggled close and wanted to be around him just as always. Even though her husband looked ugly, quote-unquote, on the outside, he is still nice, kind, and gentle on the inside. Perm was approaching. She tried to throw herself into the preparations. They joked about dressing up as pirates and wearing black patches, just like the one that Daddy wore over his eye. As a family, they decided to dress up as ugly ogres. Their home was filled with laughter, which helped considerably to relieve her stress and tension. Things started feeling a bit better. She felt it was going to be okay. Under that mask was her wonderful husband, Gotti. She started to ignore the stares they got in the streets. She didn't mind being out with him in public. Let the world see a great person, not from the external, but from within. Slowly but surely, his face started to improve. She knows that God put her through this test in order to grow. Seeing her husband's mask enabled her to more deeply appreciate his internal beauty, his true essence. 
There she was hiding behind so many masks she had to emerge. Her main one was the perfectionist mask, and boy, is that a heavy mask to uphold. But there are many masks worn over time. Overachiever, a good one, people pleaser, cool kid, victim, jokester, savior, martyr. There's a whole box of masks. Masks are used when a coping mechanism is needed to shield ourselves from the world. It's not always a bad thing to wear a mask. Sometimes it's necessary as protective measure in a very harsh and unrealistic world. But how often am I in a mask? How does it serve me? When do we feel the need to put on a mask? By and large, young children don't wear masks. They're happy just being themselves. It's only when the world around them criticizes them, cuts them down, they start adding layers to fit in to protect themselves from harm. We know when we are being our authentic, true self or not. On part, we dress up in costume. Why do we have silly costumes such a holy day? The Hebrew word for clothing is beged. It's the same root as the Hebrew word for boged, which means traitor. Often clothes often betray who we really are. The way we dress up can easily misinterpret the person. By dressing in costumes, we're making a declaration as if to say our clothing is just a misrepresentation of our true self. God is much more interested in our true inner essence. It's who we really are that inside that counts. So... On Purim, are you going to let your masks down and show up as the real you? We know firsthand how difficult this is. We know the feeling of being judged, the fear of coming along with putting it down. But you have to experience the true sweetness, the true self, the true you. Are you going to remove your mask? Are you going to show your true self? Are you going to use external substances to bring yourself to lower? Or are you going to let the real Purim come and let yourself really show yourself? Shimon Apostorf points out on H.com, a costume can be liberating. You need a mask and some clothing and no one will ever know who you are. You can be yourself, go around telling corny jokes, making people laugh. You can spend time visiting anywhere you want to go. No one will know who you are. If you do it right on porn, you might just find you don't care about, about what other people think. We all have an alter ego, a part of us that would like to be something we are not. The alter ego is an inner adversary that could foil our best attempt to achieve what we want to. And it seems that we're struggling us against ourselves. Sometimes we have to understand that you have to dress up as your alter ego, as Rabbi Noah Weinberg of Jerusalem says, on Purim, dress up as your alter ego and laugh. Do you want to devote your weekends to bettering your community, but you feel like going fishing? Dress up like a fisherman, laugh at yourself. You want to be there when your kids need you, but you feel like watching a good movie on television? Dress up like a couch potato and laugh. More than Bart Simpson or Louis C.K. or The Mandalorian or Star Wars, there's a deeper side to laughter. It cuts down to size. More than the, the costumes, it cuts down to size. Like when we get too serious about things or overly absorbed in our work or ourselves, at these times, laughter is the best medicine. It's therapeutic. It cuts down things to size and helps us get perspective. Haman built the gallows to hang Mordechai. Suddenly, Haman himself, Haman himself is hanged on those very same ones. It was going to be a day of destruction, but in a flash, it was changed into a, a day of laughter. Me'eva Yom Tov. Me'avelas Yom Tov. Laughter comes when a predictable sense of events suddenly produces the unexpected. Purim is a time to tap into the power of laughter. Understand laughter can be one of the best things to use. Rabbi Block points out on Aish that George Eliot is credited with saying history repeats itself. Mark Twain sharply improved on it with saying history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Things may change, but something always stays the same. The Hamas of the world, the Jew haters of the world, want to destroy, murder, and kill us. They're always with us. It's foretold in the Torah that Amalek comes and is the prototype of the anti-Semite throughout the ages. He comes to fight us. Joshua weakened the enemy, but he survived. He comes and comes and comes again, changing the mass, changing himself. What happened in Shushan happens throughout the ages. It's not just ancient Persia. It's the pogroms, it's the persecutions, it's the Holocaust, it's the 
nuclear wars, it's always there. It's always there. They're trying to get us. Understand that we have to learn from history. We call the Purim story. Think about our enemies who want to destroy us. Understand that in the olden days, Ahasuerus and Haman wanted to destroy us. He said that we have a certain people scattered and separate among the people. They have different laws and different customs. That's how Haman got Ahasuerus to agree, trying to show us that we're different. The Jews have dual loyalty. That's their crime. It's always been their Malik's secret weapon. Even Yamach Shemo in, in World War II knew it. Stalin knew it. Read the Torah on the way the power was able to turn the Egyptians against the Hebrews. The same Egyptians who was very familiar with them. The people of children of Israel are more numerous than us and more strong than us. Let's deal shrewdly with them. Lest they increase, let they join our enemies and wage war. A lie can get halfway across the world before truth puts it in its boots, as Winston Churchill famously said. The lie of Jewish dual loyalty was perpetrated throughout history. Throughout history. Understand, we have to be true to ourselves, true to our nation, true to our surroundings. Don't submit yourself. Don't try to, to cower before those before you. Understand to stand up for yourself. Stand up for your true self. Don't give in to the, to the naysayers around us. Stand true to your Judaism. Stand true to yourself. Stand true to your true self, your wonderful self. And don't use externals to try to get there. Masquerading on costumes and Purim is a thing we do. Colin Pakos points out on H.com. Esther shows that God's name is not there. So too we hide behind a costume to show that Hashem was in a costume. Hashem hid in himself, but he's always there guiding history. He's always there to help us. Nisan al-Safran points out on H.com a wonderful story. It was the first sunny day in a long time. Michael Jacobs was sitting in his garage with a bicycle pump in his hand. He was just about to inflate his basketball, which had gone flat over the winter, when he heard his mom call in her sing-song voice, Michael, where are you? Michael put down the pump and made his way around the back of the house. Dodging a clothesline, he put his chin up to the kitchen window so where he saw his mother rushing around tidying up. Yeah, Mom, he said. Mrs. Jacobs jumped back slightly. Oh, Michael, don't you ever use a door? Michael chuckled. <laughs> well, anyway, his mom went on. I just got off the phone with Aunt Esther. She and your cousin Ralph are in the town for the afternoon. They're coming over for a visit. So please straighten up your room and change into some clean clothes before they come. Michael groaned. Oh, Mom, of all days for Cousin Ralph to come visit. Mrs. Jacobs looked confused. What's wrong? She said. I thought you'd be happy he was coming. Michael blushed. I am, Mom, he said. It's just that when he gets here, he's going to want to spend the whole day trading stamps. I really wanted to shoot some hoops this afternoon. It's finally so nice out. So what's the problem? Asked his mom. Just tell Ralph you'd rather play ball with him today. I'm sure he won't mind. Michael shook his head. Mm -mm -mm. No way, Mom, he explained. All Ralph cares about are dumb stamps. Whenever we get together, that's all we talk about. I'm sorry I ever mentioned it to him that I had a stamp collecting kit. When he said he had one too, I pretended to be into it. I never got around to telling him I just happened to win mine as a raffle prize and that I thought stamps were boring. Now Ralph thinks they're my favorite thing in the whole world. He said that stamp collecting is a mature hobby. If I tell him I'd rather play ball than trade stamps, he'll think I'm a baby. Mrs. Jacobs stopped for a moment in the midst of her frantic preparations. Looking at her son, she said, Gee, Mike, I understand how it might be difficult to admit to Ralph that you're really not interested in stamp collecting as you told him you were. But isn't it better than spending three hours doing something you can't stand? Michael just snorted <laughs> and stomped away. He put his basketball away on the shelf. I guess I won't be needing you today, he muttered. A little while, the doorbell rang. Ding dong. 
the guests had arrived. Or if you have Ring, the guests had arrived. And Aunt Esther was carrying her usual colorfully gift-wrapped box of assorted chocolates. And sure enough, Cousin Ralph was holding a bulging stamp album. The two mothers made their way into the den amidst pleasant conversation, leaving the two boys to play by themselves in the parlor. Have a seat, Ralph, said Michael, forcing a smile. I'll just go get my albums and we can start trading right away. As Michael turned to leave the room, he didn't notice his cousin look out toward the open window and sigh. <sighs> Soon the boys settled into their usual dull routine. After a while, Michael just couldn't take it anymore. I don't care what he'll think about me, he thought. I just can't keep pretending to be something I'm not. I can't take it anymore. Michael cleared his throat. Er, <clears throat> Ralph, he said hesitantly. The other boy lifted his eyes from the stamp he had been examining. Um, it's so nice, sir. Would you mind a lot if we maybe took a break from the stamps today and we went outside and shot a few hoops? Michael anxiously waited for his cousin's reaction, but he was amazed to see Ralph's face light up, break out into a big smile. Really? Sure, I'd much rather play ball, he said. I wanted to suggest the same thing, but I was afraid you'd be upset. I know how much you love to trade stamps. The boys raced to put away the stamps and practically dashed out of the house. Turned out that Ralph was a really good ball player. After the game, the boys grabbed a cold drink. Not an alcoholic drink. Even if they were adults, cold drink. Ralph, I have a confession to make, Michael said. I don't really like collecting stamps. I just figured you were into it, so I went along. His cousin laughed. Ha ha ha, that's funny. I always thought the same thing about you. They shook their heads, the boys, and had a good laugh about how each of them had only been trading stamps because he thought that's what the other one liked to do. Sometimes we think the wrong things about people. We dress up and we masquerade thinking things, assuming things, judging things. Perm teaches us to remove our masks, to remove our costumes, and to reveal our inner selves. Perm teaches us about joy, real joy, real wonderful joy in our lives. You don't need the external substance. I showed you the Shulchan Aruch. I showed you the Mishnah Brewer. I showed you the Talmud. And I showed you the Ramah, who we hold by. All you got to do is just not know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. Take a nap. Be a little confused and disoriented. Put yourself on the pillow. And when you wake up, you'll have no idea what's flying. I took a nap today. When I woke up, I was a little disoriented. Before, I was trying to say Baruch, Mordech, Baruch Mordechai and Ar Haman. I got a little disoriented, disconfused, discombobulated. Very easy. You want to drink... Let me introduce you to my good friend Mingle, M-I-N-G-L-E, drinks bought on Amazon.com or other stores, non-alcoholic, sparkly, bubbly, delicious drinks, Cosmopolitan, Mojito, Bloodthirsty Orange, and Blackberry, Hibiscus, really cool drinks, really cool flavors. Let me introduce you to my best friend on Shabbos and Yom Tov of the materialistic food sort, Sparkling grape juice comes in blush, comes in raspberry, comes in concord, comes in peach, comes in white, comes in many flavors I can't even think of. They actually have sangria, which was one of the most delicious things I've ever tried. And it is non-alcoholic. Let me introduce you to my friend Pina Colada, non-alcoholic, and to my friend Shirley Temple, like all the bar mitzvah boys out there. And let me introduce you to what I'm currently researching for years now, non-alcoholic wine. You want to have a drink? Go ahead. Find the non-alcoholic version. You want to be Mesameach and Purim? Go ahead. Avoid the alcohol. You don't need it. Let me introduce you to Rabbi Jack Abramowitz, who's in charge of the daily learning emails from OU. Amazing stuff. Rabbi Jack talks about the idea of Purim. 
If we don't indulge on Purim, how do we fulfill Rava's idea of drinking? First of all, it's not clear that Rava's opinion needs fulfilling. If you really feel you need, there are many non-alcoholic options, at least two to think of. According to some postgame, taking a nap fulfills the concept. We talked about that point blank. Of not knowing the difference between curses, Haman, and blesses Mordechai. If you're sleeping, you certainly don't know anything about Haman or Mordechai. The gematria of the phrase, Arur Haman, curses Mordechai, is 502. The gematria of Baruch Mordechai is 502. Try to work it out and see if you could do it. Then you could be Yaitse the Chiyah. No matter how great, no one is immune to the alcohol. Try to work it out yourself. Make a mistake. Arguably, one can fulfill this concept by being bad at math. So what can we do in Purim if we're not drinking? There's so many alternatives. Here are the Megillah. Give matanot le'av yoni, give mishloach manos, eat mishloach manos, cook the Purim suda, eat the Purim suda, sing, wear a costume, perform acts of chesed, write a Purim spiel, a Purim humorous play, perform in a Purim spiel, watch a Purim spiel, collect money for tzedakah, write and sing songs or gramen, go to a program, take a nap, go to mincha. Rabbi Abramovich wrote this for NCSY, but it really applies to all of us. You'll find out there's so much you can do substance-free, intoxicating substance-free if you put your mind to it. Understand that no one, no matter how great, is immune to the effects of alcohol. A famous medrash on this section in Yalkut Shmoni describes the effects of wine on a person, how it destroys a person. When a person starts out drinking wine, he's like innocent like a lamb and complacent like a sheep. After he's had a few, he feels as if he's strong like a lion. When he's gone too far, he becomes like a pig, wallowing in his own filth, his own vomit. When drunk, he's like a monkey. He thinks he's smart, witty, and clever, when really he's like a buffoon being laughed at. So there's so many other things that you could think about. You know, Rabbah said, and Rebbe said, there are two things that cannot coexist, wine and the service of Hashem from the Gemara. What was the tree from which Adam ate? Rabbi Meir said it was the grapevine because nothing but grief is from wine. We talked about that. It is impossible to serve Hashem with silliness, irreverence, and drunkenness. That comes from the Rambam. Aren't we supposed to drink on Purim? Rabbi Abramovich points out many people talk about the famous statement of Rava in the Talmud that one should get drunk on Purim. But they don't think about the next part where there was the story that we quoted, Rabba and Rabzir, where Rabba killed Rabzir and the next year he wouldn't come. They don't think about that. You can't think about it. What an odd story. Why is it recounted there? Some say, as we talked about, the story is specifically brought to teach us Rava's opinion about drinking a Purim. The Marsha explains that Rabba did not literally kill Rav Zera, but he kept giving Rav Zera drinks and drinks and drinks until he became sick, which is also just as dangerous. Alcohol can really place one in a variety of dangerous situations. It could poison the person. It could poison and make him do bad, beha- bad behavior. If you get behind the wheel after having a few, it is very, very bad. Mamish could be sakana nefashas for you and other people. It could destroy lives. You also could see that, you know, it's very, very bad. You notice we're talking here about Purim, and it's only at the Suda. It's only literally at the Suda that we're talking about. There's no such thing as having to drink vodka or beer or scotch or needing to drink on Simchas Torah. There's no need to drink alcohol on, on Shabbos or Yom Tov. These are all things that are made up. These are not the ag- obligations. The actual obligation is only at the Purim Suda, only a little bit, only to be different between Mordechai and Haman. So what is the deal going on here? doesn't make any sense. We are required to guard our lives and our health. No one would object to your refraining from an addictive substance like alcohol that impairs your judgment. Dina de Machus says, Dina, one is obligated by halacha to follow to the laws of the land. It is forbidden. 
especially for minors, to violate legal age limits of alcohol consumption. It is forbidden to daven while under the influence of alcohol. What's really important, love is more delightful than wine. According to the Sforno, Hashem gave us the Torah with love. He gave us his mitzvahs with love. They're more precious than wine, which may make one feel good, but really is a worldly pleasure. The joy of wine is not at all like the joy of Torah mitzvahs. When wine leaves a person, sorrow immediately comes. That's not true with Torah. Real joy, real pleasure comes from mitzvahs and chesed. You ever hear the idea, friends don't let friends drive drunk? Judaism has a mitzvah that's very much like that. Torah tells us, You might not stand idly by your friend's blood. In other words, if another person's in danger, we must try to save him, even from himself. This means taking away car keys, stopping them from drinking, stopping them from doing dangerous behavior. Call Yisrael Raven Zelazeh, the Talmud teaches in Shavuot. All Jews are interconnected. We have to be liable and responsible for one another. One another. No matter how you slice it, everyone's actions affect everyone else. We're responsible. Breaking news, a non-alcoholic version of wine is widely available. It's called grape juice and sparkling grape juice. It could be used as wine substitute for Kiddush. It could be used at the Seder. It could be used at Purim. It could be used on Shabbos and Yom Tov. It's all over the place. There's red, white, sparkling peach. Mavushal, non-mavushal, very, very awesome. It is fantastic to use and easy to do. I just wanted to show a last few sources. Duties of the Heart talk about... He makes himself as your friend, pretends to show love. He enters the inner circle of close friends and advisors. Pinin Halacha talks about many people customary wear masks and costumes on Purim. Pinin Halacha also talks about you have to understand evil forces are elevated to a higher level and remove their masks, showing that they want what's best for the world. Yesterday and tomorrow talks about those in their heart belong to the camp of evil must take off their masks. That's essential of victory. Redeeming Relevance talks about learning Torah requires human authenticity, standing in front of a mirror, asking oneself the devastating question of who one really is without mass and arti- artifash- artificials, artificialities. And, and Eov talks about the sinner watches for Twilight, thinking no one will glimpse him, but really, it will be glimpsed. It's understood in Pirkei Elvis, we learned today in, in 4 5, that really anything you do in private or in public will come to fruition especially in your behavior on Purim and on Shabbos and Yom Tov and Simchas Torah, Hashem will see, the world will see. You want to really be involved in Purim. You want to be involved in removing your mask and being your true self. Involve yourself in the mitzvahs of the day, the real mitzvahs of the day. And don't tell me drinking is the mitzvah of the day. We already proved countless times that it's not. Only in the Seuda, only to be our... Our Haman Tabarach Mordechai, which can be done in a variety of ways, it's not safe, it's not proper, it's not Kavadik, it's not Kiddush Hashem. Remove your mask, follow the way of Hashem. Rabbi Abramovich points out, the Shulchan Aruch points out, the Talmud points out, the Shona Halachos points out, the Ramah points out. Use the proper sources to understand what to be involved in, in really the day. Understand that wine should be not involved. Don't do it. It causes a lot more problems than it solves. Make sure to really be involved. Understand the danger involved. Have a really wonderful, beautiful Purim. Taking care of your wife and kids. Being a good dad, a good role model. Not lying in your filth because you were so mocked about something that's not even a true mitzvah. Drinking at night is not a mitzvah. Drinking in the morning is not a mitzvah. Drinking after Purim is not a mitzvah. Drinking on Purim is not a mitzvah. Only at the Suda and only to be the difference between Mordechai and Haman. And you could fulfill it by taking a nap. Or by just being a little discombobulated, a little disoriented, or trying to find gematria, trying to do the the whole spiel of the whole song, the whole poem, very easy to fulfill the mitzvah without alcohol, without substances. Have sparkling grape juice. Have a good Purim. Be involved in Matanos of Yonim. 
Make sure to do it in a proper way, not to be over-the-top grand. Maybe if we could finally understand the true essence of the mitzvahs, the true essence of Purim, maybe there could be more Kiddush Hashem, more Ahava Tchina, more Ahava in the world, more beauty in the world, more amazingness in the world, and we could finally have a true Purim, a true life of happiness and health, where Mashiach could come and the basement could finally be, be rebuilt in the days, may speedily be in our days. So have a happy Purim, a Freilichem Purim, a beautiful, safe Purim, and a wonderful week. And this has been the TTL, where we talk about the, the topic of the week with some practical lessons to keep. And I'm your host, Tani.